Have you ever wondered how to make sense out of your messy life or how to live in peace in the middle of a stressful world? My name is Jamie Norton, and I want to welcome you to the Making Peace and Beyond podcast, where we talk about life struggles and how to live in the peace, joy, and freedom that Christ died to give us. Today, I'm here with my dearly beloved friend, Brock Lutz. Brock is a licensed counselor and is a health services director at Hillsdale College in Michigan. And uh, Brock, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, so glad to be here. I We've just started using some of your material at, at the college. And the other day we were we were talking about the material and watching one of the videos with you. And one of the girls was like, wow, it's so cool that you know her. <laughs> and uh, I count it such a privilege to, to know you over the last, I don't know, 20 or so years. And uh, so great to be here. Yeah, I think our friendship has come of age. That is very true. It's kind of, uh, and I am so grateful for it. And uh, today what we were going to talk about is something we often talk about, is uh, the, quote, mental health system, uh, which often is the mental illness system. And so just the different things that we have seen over the years, um, I have been in this business for 44 years or uh, of my own recovery, but also close to 50 years in the mental health system. And, uh, you know, I've always been grateful that my introduction to the mental health system was on the campus of one of the old psychiatric asylums that were built in the 1800s, late 1800s. The one I was living and working in was built in 1875. And, wow. and, um, it was right in the beginning of the days of deinstitutionalization, but what it allowed me to see was the two things. One is what happens at the end of the way we have dealt with mental health and mental illness um, in what we used to call the Thorazine shuffle, where people were walking around like robots. <laughs> and right. the other thing it allowed me to see was the nature of some of the people that were making these diagnoses and feeding these medications. and. Um, I ended up married to a psychiatrist who happened to be uh, a drug addict, and we had housing on the campus of, a, of the hospital, which was built in, after World War II. And what happened was uh, to be a, a person who lived on those campuses, you had to either be a PhD or an MD or a department head. And we were literally making marijuana brownies for staff picnics. This was in the early 70s. And on and, uh, the psychiatrist I was married to had sheets of LSD in his medical books and would shock treat people the next day. And so yes. I got this kind of idea about what we were doing that was a little unusual. We had to almost rattle our keys to see who was the difference between a patient and a staff person in that day. <laughs> and since then, uh, I've worked in community mental health. I'm one of the few people I know that has pretty much worked in every setting of mental health. Yeah. Uh, worked in uh, community mental health when it first got going. Um, I worked at the regional level, worked at the state level, worked mm -hmm. as a consultant at the federal level, and then left public service and went into a private hospital. Um, and then I opened my own intensive outpatient and, um, and then opened a private practice and worked as an employee assistance person for the airlines as a consultant and, and then started gravitating toward the thing that gave me peace was which was christ and the church and started working with uh church congregations and 
in all of that about 40 years ago, started doing the Making Peace and Beyond uh, workshops and found healing that people were having that was beyond what I had hoped for. Uh, and so a lot of concepts that came out of that. So give us a little bit about your history and the whole idea of mental health and working sure. in it. Yeah, so I'm I'm a little younger than you, uh, and <laughs> most people so are. <laughs> I, I graduated with my master's degree in uh, around 2006, and so I I, I but I, I consider myself very fortunate, like you said, that I've been able to work in a lot of different aspects of mental health, which I think working on a college campus is helpful because you never know what's going to walk in the front door, and on a college campus, you're kind of you know, the staff, you're, you're kind of their parents. They're looking to you to take care of them. So um, very varied interest and, and experience. I started off um, doing uh, community mental health, doing in-home uh, in therapy on the east side of Cleveland. And so I was going into the projects and meeting with kids who were on probation and at the same time was working with sex offenders. So that was a county probation contract. So doing sex offender assessments and then doing uh, treatment with them afterward, usually in group therapy. Uh, worked at a private practice uh, on the west side of Cleveland for a while. That was primarily substance abuse and doing groups, uh, intensive outpatient groups, both with adolescents and with adults. And then around... Um, I don't know, after I'd been in the field for maybe about five years, I switched over to a hospital-based system where I was doing working in their outpatient clinic, um, and then I moved inpatient, and then I always joke that I, I had a series, a fortunate series of people above me just <laughs> quit, and so it's like everyone else stepped back, and I found myself as the clinical director for uh, for uh, one of the biggest psych hospitals in Ohio. So I, I was about four years graduated from grad school, but had about 50, 50 uh, employees. And then, uh, so that was for profit mental health, uh, which that's, an, that's a weird, um, you know, phrase uh, when we talk about healthcare and it being for profit. And then that was my last stop before coming here uh, to Hillsdale, where I oversee the medical services and, and also the counseling services. And, uh, you know, and, and we, one thing that's different about this setting is that we don't charge for our services. Uh, you know, we, so we see people and uh, for all kinds of um, levels of acuity uh, and sometimes just people who want to bounce something off of someone you know, imagine working in a mental health setting where you can see people before they're in crisis. Like, well, boy, what a thought, right? You know, uh, whereas most insurance companies don't pay for that because it's not a diagnosable disorder. And so when, when you talk about having a system that is based on pathology, that, uh, that is certainly true. What, one thing that people don't understand with, um, with actually modern healthcare, this is, this is more of the Affordable Care Act, that, um, that Medicare reimbursements uh, based on the, the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the, the level of reimbursement is based on patient surveys. So it's based on how satisfied are people with the care that they received. 
which in theory sounds really good, except that what people find in the medical sphere, but also in the counseling sphere, is that clinicians are put in a position where they don't actually give the advice that a client, they, that they think a client needs. They, they, they give, they give uh, you know, client information or recommendations based on what will make the client happy. So what we're doing is we're avoiding a lot of topics that should be addressed. We're not dealing with things like, oh, you have diabetes, so maybe you should lose weight because you weigh 300 pounds. Instead, we're just giving people medication. Or when someone goes in for surgery, uh, I broke my nose a couple years ago at a monastery, which is a whole other story, but um, <laughs> broke my nose. And I had to argue with the anesthesiologist to not receive a narcotic because as an addict, I didn't want a narcotic. And, but I think that whole conversation with him was based on the fact that he wanted to make sure that I had zero pain and, uh, and that, you know, so having a, having a healthcare system that is based on people's satisfaction like that is, is pretty, pretty, dangerous and it, and it creates an unhealthy system from the very beginning. So. And I want to just piggyback on that too, because what happens is what, when we go to a doctor, we expect medicine. Right. And, and, and that's the same thing that is true when people come into counseling or come into mental health. We want something to immediately make the pain go away. It's very American of us is we want immediate solutions you know, so when people come into my office, what they're looking for is, number one, if they're a couple, they're looking for a judgment, who's right and who's wrong, which is I tell them, if you want, if you want, you know, justification, you're in the wrong system. I'm about restoration, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, but, you know, they want medication. They want a, a, a here to do. Here's how to do it. Here's a recipe for you to get your what you want right now. And. Our, our mental health doesn't work that way. And so what we end up doing is short-term uh, crisis. Symptom stuff. management. We're managing symptom symptoms. Management without yeah. addressing core issues. Yeah. And, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, really looking at what's wrong with you, I think that's one of the huge things. The other thing is that in an insurance-based system very often or, you know, then – we have to give a diagnosis. We have to give a label. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of my pet peeves is we're sort of saying to people, this is who you are. We're going to give you a new identity and you're going to always be depressed. You're going to always have post-trauma. You're going to always have anxiety. And so you're going to have to manage that rather than what we know now. That's the old system. What we know now is with neuroplasticity and, you know, people can heal. They don't have to always be anything, you know, that we can rewire our brain, that we can do things. And, and what we find, because in a Christian setting, you know, what we're finding is that what we know now about the brain and the way the brain works is that, um, is, is verifying, is, is, is validating scripture. You will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will be a new creation in Christ. And that takes a whole different venue of someone coming into an office for individual prescriptions. Yeah. I mean, and, 
And interesting that both of us are in recovery and both of us have learned what healing requires. You know, healing requires a community. You cannot heal in isolation. We need people that can help us to see ourselves differently. We need people that can, uh, where we can tell our story and feel the eyes of acceptance and see the eyes of acceptance to know that we can reconnect in a different way, that we can be who we are and still have relationships that people aren't going to run away with their hands up in the air, you know, saying, Oh my goodness, this is terrible. I can't be with you. Some will because, you know, some do, but, but that there is healing available and that we're not chairs. You know, I did my, uh, my master's work on social labeling, self-concept and deviancy. And over and over again, what we find is that people are looking for an identity and who they are. And when we put our identity in something that someone else says, then we're giving them tremendous power. Yeah. And I was surprised in some of you, you kid me about my TikTok stuff and my Instagram stuff. But but one of the things I found in my TikTok stuff was one of them went viral. And about half the people were like, because what I said was, the things that happened to you in your past don't have to hurt you in your present because they really only exist in your mind. Mm-hmm. Some people were like, yeah, yeah, you, you heal, you move beyond it. But other people got mad. They got really mad because the hope of healing was not in their framework. Right. You know, trauma's in your body. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I can't get over this. And mm-hmm. just sort of that helpless victim mentality that was created when we put people in boxes. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And I, I think with, with pain and in things that are challenging, we, we tend to go one of two directions. And I think this is as true in the church as it is outside the church that we, we either tend to overly identify it. And then we absorb that, that, that pain, that trauma, um, whatever disorder or challenges I might have. And I absorb that into my identity. And, you know, we say things like, well, I, I can't do that because, you know, I, I just did that because I'm ADHD or, you know, I, I, I can't do this because I'm depressed. And uh, I, I remember in group therapy once, maybe the, 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 the worst thing I ever said to someone in a therapeutic <laughs> setting where. Oh, I can't know, imagine what um, it was. <laughs> uh, we, we had. I had this woman and, and she would consistently uh, come to, it was an IOP group. So we had three hour groups, three times a week. And she would come about once every week, you know, and miss two groups. And finally she came back and she said, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I couldn't come to group on Monday and Tuesday. And so I had had this woman and I was probably frustrated. And I believe as a therapist in being honest in my responses. So I looked at her and I said, do you mean your legs wouldn't work? (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, no, I was so depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. And I said, no, no, that's what I mean. Like your legs wouldn't work. Like you actually (laughs) were physically unable to get out of bed. And everyone in the group was about ready to like jump me, you know, and I said, look, I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying to prove a point. I understand being so depressed that you feel like you can't get out of bed. But if you're giving your feelings that much control over you, that is a dangerous way to live our lives. You have to be able 
to do the things that you have control of. And as Marsha Linehan says, the founder of DVT, you take your depressed self with you to therapy, right? Because you know when you stay home, you don't get better. So that's one side. We have people that over-identify with it and, and those kind of things. But then you have probably more of our tendency in the church to say, well, everything's fine. I've moved past that. Let go and let God. Forgive and forget. Forgive and forget has to be one of the stupidest sayings I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you can't forget things. You know, like, and actually, how many times in Scripture does God tell us to remember? Remember the former things. So, like, but we, 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 we go to one of those extremes or another, and actually, we're called to walk between both of those things. We're called to remember where we've come from. And to, just like when we go to a, to, to a doctor, he pushes on our pain to see where it hurts the most so that we can heal and we don't walk around with a limp the rest of our lives. But we go one of those extremes, and I, I think at least in my kind of experience with Christianity, we tend towards the latter because we actually think it's dishonoring to God to, to have pain. Or it's dishonoring to God to say my parents and when the things they did actually affected me and and there's hurt that's there and we want to really gloss over that and that isn't we can't have healing from something we don't even acknowledge. I think I want to follow up on that too, is that we have all healing happens in truth. We can't heal outside of truth. God is the source of healing and God is truth. And until we acknowledge, we can't move beyond. And sometimes I think in the church, what we do is we say, you know, if we hurt, then it's like, are, are you even saved? You know, well, yeah. you know, one of the things that sometimes somebody will say, I, I, I'm saved. And I'm like, I want to know from what, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like this right. never happened now, or I haven't done anything wrong since then. Mm-hmm. And to realize that we're human and we're always in the process of being transformed to be more like Jesus and we're trans being transformed that there is I mean we have a story and we ha- we were born into a story that was already going on and we're writing a story with our life and so we we have to have the whole story we have to be a part of something bigger and we tend to be so all or nothing mm-hmm. either I'm all the victim or I'm all better then then and we make mistakes on that rather than just sharing a journey that we're all in and and when you hurt i can come alongside you and when i hurt you can come alongside me and that's the beauty of our friendship is that we don't we don't profess to be oh gee i'm all better now you know we we do tend to say you know I'm using, God uses all of those experiences, not only to help us to heal, but to reach out to others in who are still living in the pain of all those experiences and, um, and to help each other. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that if a lot of times what does happen in the church is that we're, if, if we tell our story, we're comfortable telling our past story. <laughs> you know, like, I used to do this and I, I used to do that. But, um, Don't do that I, anymore. <laughs> actually, you know, now I've attained some kind of level of perfection. 
you know, and, and I had a student recently say to me, he said, you know, it's almost like I, I'm doing whatever I can to prove that somehow I don't need to be dependent on God. Like I'm trying to, to look perfect, you know, and I, I think what is what I what I think is so important about 12 step recovery is sure 12 step recovery is about me being in an, a group of honest people who know my life story. But the main point of me going every week is to sit there and say, how am I doing right now? Because that is more important about my overall recovery mm-hmm. than uh, or as important as you know, triggers and some of those kind of things of you talked about living in truth and it's living in truth in the here and now. And, you know, I I think of all the scandals that have hit, you know, American Christianity over the last many years and Robbie Zacharias and like those kind of things. And I don't, I don't judge those men because you know what, I'm one step away from making an awful decision. Uh, That is, that's any of us. And, but I, I think what would have happened if 20 years ago, Ravi Zacharias would have went to one of his elders and said, Hey, you know, I got a massage the other day and it was actually quite arousing for me. And I don't want to act on that. So would you keep me accountable and ask me how I'm doing? Think of the witness that would have been safe for this man who mm-hmm. was brilliant and spoke, you know, but, but we, we do live writing? in ongoing honesty with people and uh, because we don't live in ongoing honesty with ourselves. And, and so that is such an important need. And a lot of times people think there's a great book written by a guy named David Benner uh, called The Gift of Being Yourself. And one of the things he says is, you know, finding yourself sounds like it is this uh, new agey kind of, you know, uh, esoteric kind of Buddhist thing. He said, as a Christian, when you really find yourself and know yourself, you will actually find God because then you'll be aware of your anxiety, your struggles, your fears, and that will lead you to God. And he says, if you don't know yourself, then you can't know God. I know for me, when I when I look at some of the things I did and still do and, you know, things that I've messed up, I try to always end those thoughts with, thank God, I have a Savior, because that takes me right back to gratitude. And I think humble gratitude is the best way to live. And, you know, so it's just, uh, I, I think you're right in that we tend to push people away because we act as if we're all perfect. One of the things about making peace and beyond when people come into the weekend, they, they see a group of 15, 20 people who are, who look very normal and who look like they've never had the same struggles. And as And one of the things that I do is I tell my story because God let me do every sin there is so that other people would feel comfortable with theirs. And so, so, and then I always thought that people would get up and run out of the room because I was actually told and sent away and told that if you have to go far away and live a lie, if you want to have a normal life. And so it took me about 20 years to get back from that. But, you know, 
when I tell my story, I find myself even now, 40 some years later, at the end of the story, I'll kind of look out to see the see that if there's judgment out there but instead of running out of the room what i found over and over again is that people tell their story and their story has elements of my story and so people begin to know i'm not alone in this this is a human struggle we we're i mean we have there are other people that have been through some of the things that i've been through and I don't have to live alone. I don't have to hide because shame makes us hide. Mm-hmm. And and the, the risk of coming out of hiding is that I have to be vulnerable. I have to allow myself to be seen and to be known. But then I found out I can be seen and known and loved. Yeah. And sometimes we find out from God first, you know, that God knows me and he loves me. But then to see that there are other people who can both know me and love me is like the greatest gift in the world. And there's such freedom in that, that we just don't embrace it the way that it can be embraced. And, and uh, so I feel I I love to watch it. People come in on Friday night to this weekend thing and they are, like scared thinking why did I agree to do this and how can I get out of here and I almost feel this little chuckle inside that I know that by Sunday night you're going to be a group of people who love each other and are bonded with each other because you know each other you're beginning to know each other and you're beginning to feel acceptance that you may never have felt before. Mm-hmm. And to, to watch what God can do when we let him, when we enter into truth with grace, is just incredible to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and, and in the mental health system as it exists, we tend to block in the illness because we medicate it. And when I am sitting on the eye of a hot stove, the last thing I need to do is to medicate my butt. That's right. Because all I'm going to get is a fried butt. I'm not going to, it's not going to help me. Right. You know, but when I have people who help me get off that stove, when I have people who can really help me to, to deal with the courage it takes to change my position, mm-hmm. then that is a freedom and strength that is just an incredible thing. Yeah, that's right. Well, and we've we've done uh, some form of making peace here at Hillsdale for the last ten years. And one, one, first of all, it takes us a lot more than nine weeks to get through the workbook. <laughs> uh, you know, so um, often what we'll do is we'll have six people, but we're on a college campus, so they're different ages. You know, so what we'll do is we'll have, we'll do it with six people. Three of them will graduate. And then the three who are left over, they will do it again. And then they become like the veterans of the group. So as you were talking, I was nodding my head because we, we're, just in the, um, we're just in the process now of everyone sharing their story. And, um, and we had a couple girls this past week who were introducing themselves to the group. And, and they, they had already done it before. And they said... I just want to let you know, it's so great because, you know, we're a Christian college. It's upper, upper middle class, uh, 32 ACT, you know, but they said it's just so nice to have a place on campus where you can be known and, and it's okay that you've dealt with some of the things you've dealt with 
and um, and you know there there's just such power in that. So I, I echo what you said. One question I have is, you know, um, and and maybe maybe this is not the direction you wanted to go in, but you know, someone might listen to this and say, yeah, but I'm dealing with depression, and so I have some thoughts. But what would you say to that person? Is are, are the things that they should then start to work on or address to get at the root of their depression? How, I mean, I know that's a, that's a really specific mm-hmm. question, but uh, what, are, what are some of the things that you would say, here's what you should do instead of just, uh, instead of just taking Prozac? I think taking Prozac locks it in. And yeah. it says, and, and it gets you to that place where you think, I can't do anything about this because you don't have the emotional energy or pain. I mean, we, we change because the pain of where we are is worse than the fear of where we're going. Right. And it's, so it's, it's, it's hard to allow yourself to dive back into the things that happened along the way. But I want to find out where you've been. I want to find out what's your story that has led up to the depression. What's the grief that you haven't grieved? You know, what is the, what are the things that, um, what are the things you haven't talked about? Let's put into words the things that you think and feel. I mean, you mentioned earlier, feelings are not gods. I mean, feelings are, um, I tell people sometimes, if your God is your feelings, your God is an idiot. Because your feelings... (laughs) Your feelings don't know where they are. They don't know if they're fact or fiction or whether they're past, present, or future. They don't know anything. They're they're a result of what you're thinking and the things that have happened to you. And so we need to find out what is it, what are those beliefs you have that may be false? You know, what are are the things that are, are blocking your path? What is your faith? You know, I mean, we need to look at that. What is your willingness to share with a group? Yeah. You know, what are you willing to do? You know, I mean, because you're in isolation, you're not going to heal. Yeah. You've got to have community to heal. Yeah. You've got to talk about it to heal. Yeah. And it's scary. I mean, what I see a lot is, especially these days, and I'm I'm going to tell about my little prejudice here. The word trigger. <laughs> Triggers you? <laughs> trigger is becoming a sore word for me not because people don't have triggers Mm -hmm. when things that are painful are hit if i've got a a cut and somebody hits that cut it's gonna trigger me i'm gonna have pain but what i do find is that trigger has become an excuse for a couple of things it's become i'm that triggers me means we're not going to talk about this and that triggers me also means the next thing I do is going to be inappropriate. And you're supposed to understand that I don't have to follow the rules of relationship because I'm triggered, <laughs> you know. Right. And so either of those things is an unhealthy response to triggers. If I've got a trigger, I need to stop right where I am and talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I need yeah. to know that no matter I need to leave the situation if the next thing I'm going to do is going to be disrespectful to somebody. Yep. I'm responsible yep. for managing my triggers. Yep. But that goes back to that idea of the importance of really knowing myself yeah. and, and, and giving myself enough space and, and, a, and enough, 
quiet to actually slow down and reflect so that I'm aware of what those things are instead of just blaming someone else. I was at a conference uh, a couple years ago. I I, I think I've told you this story, but people are going to listen to this and they're going to believe it's not true, but it was a national college (laughs) counseling conference and a woman was up front, PhD, talking about all the different challenges that college students face. She actually said this. She said, when it comes to college students who are underserved or who are who have challenges, we need to stop telling them to be resilient. Because what that means is that they need to change. And it's the system that needs to change. And I thought, Oh my gosh, that is potentially the most dangerous thing I've ever heard come out of someone's mouth because you instantly have all of these 800 therapists in a room who are who are now going to look at that person sitting on the couch and say, you aren't the one who is the locus of control in your life. You are only a result of what everyone around you is doing. And boy, that is that's 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 dehumanizing. Oh, I mean, my that's, that's so horrible. But to me, I think that what we've lost, and I think this goes, this is maybe some of the root ideas. You know, one of the things we say around Hilt all the time is ideas have consequences. And, I, and the way that you think about things has consequences. To me, I think that that is a lack of understanding that actually pain and suffering are some of the biggest teachers in our lives. And it's why we have parents Mm -hmm. who don't let their children suffer. Uh, You know, it's it's why we, we, we try to protect everyone when they feel bad. And quite honestly, what you said earlier, the idea that the, the depression isn't the problem. Depression actually might be the solution to me finding a deeper answer as I start asking questions about it. What does this mean? And how do I deal with things? And maybe I need to open up and maybe I need to tell my story and maybe God, I I need to be more reliant on God in my life. And when we just do anything to, to, to manage symptoms, we get away from that. And, and we think that depression and anxiety is the problem. It's actually maybe just an alarm that there is a problem and we need to figure out to do something about it, you know, to, yeah. to manage our lives in a way where we're becoming more whole and healthy people. So, you know, the greatest gift that we have and the image of God in us is our ability to make choices. Amen. You know, I mean, that's our free will, free will. Yeah. And that's what was failed when people were in the death camps, you know, that that were found to. You know, what is it that helps a person to stay healthy? It is the ability to choose something. So if I get a crust of bread and I maintain the ability to say, I'm going to eat it all now. I'm going to give half of it away. I'm going to save half of it for me later. That ability to choose keeps me sane. And it keeps me growing. And when somebody treats us as if we're a permanent victim, then we are taking their humanity away from them. We are destroying the very thing that makes them human to say, I am totally helpless as a result of my environment. That is not true. Yeah. You know, and right. I'm not saying that there isn't 
mental illness. I think one of the another one of the saddest mental health things that I think has come along is you have a chemical imbalance. Well, when I eat sugar, I have a chemical imbalance. Yeah, if I yeah. go running, I have a chemical imbalance. Yeah, you know, right. we know that neuroplasticity is real. The brain can reformat, but I have to do the work. Yeah. Somebody else cannot do the work in my story to make my story change. Mm-hmm. And I hear all the time, I went to counseling and it didn't help. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of work did you do? It works if you work it. <laughs> you know, right. it doesn't work if you don't work it. Well, but th- that's what's nice about the chemical dependency world and why the mental health world, be honest, as a therapist, I, I went from running a chemical dependency intensive outpatient program to, to running a mental health intensive outpatient program. And I felt like I, got, I was hit by a Mack truck. And the difference was this. <laughs> you sit in a group full of people that are that are 12-step focused, and they hear from the minute they step into a 12-step meeting, my recovery is my responsibility. You also hear things like, recovery isn't about sobriety. Recovery is about becoming a healthy person. So that's that's whole person, mm-hmm. right? That's big perspective. You step into the mental health world and all of a sudden they look at the therapist and they say, okay, what are you going to do to fix me? Which mm-hmm. again is very dehumanizing. <laughs> um, and, you know, I used to work with a therapist who would at those times bring, he actually had a magic <laughs> wand in his desk and he would bring it out and he would say, uh, I mean, I, I believe that sarcasm is a very effective counseling technique, you know, and he would, he would wave it over them and say, well, I can try it. We'll see if it works, you know, but, but he made a point of saying, you know, that that would deprive you of the of, of the benefit and how wonderful it is when I say that I haven't had a drink of alcohol in 12 years. The reason I'm proud about that is because I have put in the work. I've put in the work. I, I want to put in a plug for myself. Last week, I had 44 years of sobriety. Oh, that's amazing. I know it. It yeah. is. It's, a, it's It in of itself is a miracle. You've and crossed the God. threshold of being sober <laughs> longer than you were than you were drunk. So I, uh, well, I know. I know. <laughs> and having come out of an alcoholic family system, yeah, you know, my normal was so abnormal and over the years what i've been able to see is that i don't have to live that way Mm. i have a choice to rewrite a different story you know to 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 change the party line and so that to me is just like i love it i love to get i love watching people heal and get it Mm. but i've never seen me fix somebody or you fix somebody right yeah that's right. You know, I, I mean, I, I tell people, I don't know how to heal you. I have a gray haired old woman, but I know the guy who can. And he says, you have choice. He says you're created in his image. You know, so to me, it's just like, OK, you know, and I'm not saying I don't discount. Middle illness totally, but I think we have so overrun the thing. Right. Every person is not mentally ill. Having feelings and grief, we've taken away the grief process. That's become a pathology now. Yeah. God gave yeah. us grief to adapt to change and integrate loss, mm-hmm. and we need it. We need to cry. We need to get angry. We need to do those things. We need to learn how to manage those things in a way that helps us to grow beyond. Well, and and, and, and what we've done, we've actually it, it actually cuts both ways because – 
We've pathologized those people who are very, very depressed, but we've also created this line in the sand that if I'm, if I have low level depression or something that, well, I'm not really bad. And, you know, then the truth of it is we all like to be human is to suffer, to mm -hmm. be human. I mean, I, I tell students all the time, do you realize there are some days I don't want to get out of bed? There are some days that I drag myself into work because I'm quite anxious, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I struggle with those kind of things. And, you know, that's, again, going back to scripture and the truth of scripture, that's why it's so amazing to me that the book of Psalms was allowed to be in the canon of, of Christendom because you have this book where people shake their fist at God, they're sad, they're, they're, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and it, does, it isn't always cleaned up perfect. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, no, in the book of Psalms, though, it always comes around back to God. And it's like, really? Read Psalm 88. It ends with, and darkness is my only companion. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the, the truth of it is, we serve a God who allows us to be human, who allows us to cry and shake our fist at him and say, where are you? And the reason is because just like we're talking about the importance of honesty between you and me, God also wants that honesty. He doesn't, he doesn't say, come to me when you've cleaned yourself up. He says, all who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me. I will give you rest. You don't get rest and then come to me. You come to me so that you can get rest. What a wonderful God we serve. I know. We're allowed to be human. I mean, that's just great. So it's it's uh so I don't know. It's it, it it seems like we've gone down a lot of wrong roads in the name of restoring mental health, and and we've gone down a lot of wrong roads in terms of being Christians without feelings and emotions and life happening, <laughs> you know, and so finding that balance. But I love Christian recovery i love looking at how god can heal i love uh you know not going to try and find quick fixes but looking at our experiences and uh being with other people and being honest and i love our friendship <laughs> and Amen. Yeah. And we could probably go ahead forever and ever and ever <laughs> on this whole thing do yeah. you th have anything else you think would be good to throw in at the last moment here? Well, a couple of different times I, I, I've been kind of thinking about recovery and how we help people in those things. Our chaplain here is a dear friend of mine, Adam Rick. He, he gave a, a talk on campus last year on, on holiness. And he said, you know, what's interesting is that holiness sounds a lot like wholeness. And it's the same root word. And, and that what it really means to be holy is, is to be whole. And that means, and we talk a lot on our campus about being a whole person. And that means having healthy choices that you're making, having healthy relationships, healthy physical life, you know, exercising, eating well, um, having healthy thoughts and healthy emotions and coping skills, and having a healthy spiritual life which means how are you connecting with God and what are you living your life for? At the counseling center, we often have people write their own eulogy, you know, thinking if you die in 60 years, 
What do you want someone to say about you? And I think that's so much of what we're talking about, which is be a person that's committed to growing in those different areas in your life. And I think if we do that, then we will be able to encounter depression and anxiety and sadness and, and, and everything else when it comes. And it probably will because we're human. And just because we're experiencing those things doesn't mean God has been anywhere. Sometimes that's exactly when he enters into our story in a deeper and more meaningful way. Yeah, he has a strong tendency to interrupt our plans and our ideas in order to yeah. give us himself, <laughs> you know, right. and, yeah. and, well, thank you for being with me all these oh, years so and right now. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, you know what people don't recognize, this is just what our monthly phone calls sound like, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah. I love you dearly. Love you too. Bless you. And, um, yeah, and uh, we can good luck with your. Uh, I'm really hoping that uh, your new making peace and beyond group goes well. And uh, yeah, I'll let you know. I bet it so far yeah, so good. Do. We've met three times, and we're still in the midst of everybody telling their stories, which is just so precious. It really is. Oh, it is. It's well, it's yeah. such a gift to hear each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah.